Well, good morning. Welcome. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. A joy to be able to sing together, pray together, and come to hear the word together. For some of you, you've been here with us um, from about nine o'clock this morning, involved in one of our several classes or serving in our children's ministry or helping teenagers grapple with the Bible. Uh, we uh, spend that first hour from nine to about 10, 15 uh, being together and, and getting into the Word together and encouraging each other. And so it's good. Uh, it's a good morning by the time we get here to where I hear your voices singing. Um, we have a, a class uh, for adults that is tackling the attributes of God right now, and it's been rich and good and hard. I mean, it's t- hard stuff to, to work through. Um, someone in that class this morning uh, left behind some car keys. And so we're not going to put you on blast, but when you can't leave, Find me later uh, this morning, and I will help you leave um, to get off to lunch. Um, we have room in those classes for more, so um, we'd love to see you in a future Sunday. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up that Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to finish off this chapter and actually clip a little bit of chapter 5, the first couple of verses of chapter 5. So we're going to begin at verse 24. And we're going to read through verse 2 of chapter 5. Our series in Ephesians is walking us through gospel doctrine and gospel culture. In the context of the church, the the things that we believe and the the way that we live meet together here in this context. And our passage for us this morning is certainly going to speak to how those things meet together and why it is so needed uh, for us in the church. So let's hear the words uh, from Ephesians 4. Uh, chapter, tw- or chapter 4, starting in verse 25 and going through uh, verse 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be Kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless this time as we come to it together. And we certainly want this to be profitable for our heads, but also our hearts and our lives. And so would you be with us in the preaching, in the hearing, in the receiving, in the believing of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't expect many people in here to know the name Carlos Boozer, and that's okay. Carlos was a professional basketball player, and 20 years ago, He was on the Cleveland Cavaliers the year they drafted a young, recent high school graduate by the name of LeBron James. Carlos was not a fan of this draft pick, 
as he felt the Cavaliers were his team. And he gave one of those most incredible, there cannot be a worse take than this kind of moments. Harlow said of this LeBron James, we have better players than him in his position already on our team. That first year was filled with weird tension and awkwardness and conflict with Carlos, who had a pretty good season thanks in part to this kid who was clearly better than everybody else on the team. And so after that year, Carlos and his agent went working on a new contract with the Cleveland organization, a a contract that they wanted to keep him despite his bad culture attitude. So in order to pay Carlos more, the team changed his contract status, which then allowed him to bolt Cleveland for green pastures elsewhere. It was dubious, dishonest, and clearly schemed up by Carlos and his, and his agent to take advantage of the two trusting organization. While everyone recognized how conniving and dishonest Carlos and his agent were, most realized that this was for the best. Now that the bad culture fit was no longer rotting the team that was being built around this young phenom. Culture matters. It can be life-giving or life-draining. It can build up or it can tear down. This is true anywhere. It could be true in a home. It could be true in a work setting. It could be true in an orchestra or on a professional basketball team. And it can be true even in a church. Our passage this morning is picking up Paul's call in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner that is fit to the gospel. He took a slight diversion from this call that he started with in Ephesians 4.1 to focus on the context of the church where we see gospel to- doctrine, that what we believe, and gospel culture, that how we live, meet together. Now Paul gets into the gritty with the application of the gospel to our manner of living. Not only is the gospel good news of salvation, but also how that salvation brings about transformation in our day-to-day living. In our passage this morning, we have 13 imperatives. Imperative is a command verb calling for specific actions. There are 13 of them as applications of the gospel to our manner of life. 13 calls to positive pursuits and radical removals. These imperatives guide us to see how the gospel is indeed to shape our lives together. And that's important. It's important to keep the context in mind. This passage is written with the context of the church. It describes the kind of culture that is to mark the church. It shows how we are to go about learning to walk together. And as we walk through this passage, we'll find three groupings of these imperatives. And each grouping will be capped with a summarizing reason for them. So we'll just use those summarizing reasons as our main points of focus this morning. All under the umbrella of us learning how we can go about walking together. So first up, we are learning to walk together 
so as to leave no room for the devil. One of the things that Paul emphasizes here is that our learning to walk together is to be done so that we don't leave room for the devil. Let's look again at verses 25 through 27. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In each of these groupings, we're going to find positive pursuits and radical removals. These are actions that are to be consistent with the gospel. Remember, as we've been saying, we're not just simply saved from something, but we are also saved to something. And Paul is, is walking through this life that we are learning to walk together. This is what we are saved to. And so we are to, for one instance, put away falsehood, that is, throw off old deceitful ways and embrace these new ones. First up we find here is that we would be people learning to walk together in speaking truth. In speaking truth to one another. Instead of deceitful ways, we are now called to speak truth. And this speaking truth is is essentially that we are in each other's lives in such a way that we're able to give gospel direction to one another for the good of each other. That our speaking truth with one another is essentially us saying, here's how we go Christward together. Here's the direction. Here's what it looks like to go down that direction. That we're in each other's lives enough to be able to say those kinds of things to one another, for one another, and with one another. We keep holding that out to each other, that Christ is indeed worth it, and we speak the truth of that. Rather than trying to gain, we are eager to to give each other good Christ-word direction. We also see that we are not to go about sinning in our anger. The command to be angry and do not sin is a command to prevent anger from deteriorating into devastating sin in the culture of a church. From letting it rot the church out from within. It's actually a quote from a psalm. Apostle Paul is bringing in language from Psalm 4 and applying it to the context of the church. Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5 says this. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That's incredibly instructive for our hearts incredibly instructive for how to deal with the things that may flood our hearts, things like anger. First, we know that the psalm is written by David, and David was being wrongly accused. David was being misspoken of. David was being gossiped about. David was experiencing the kinds of things that would be very hard to not get angry over. So that's what's happening to David, and maybe we can relate to that. We know of times in which we've been wrongly accused or misspoken of or gossiped about. And so there's some instructions here for our heart. Secondly, we see that David gives a biblical template for handling anger, even righteous anger, anger that's not in the wrong per se. And he says 
the best way to prevent anger from slipping into sin is to do these two things. To ponder and be silent. To Ponder and be silent. And his pondering is even directive. It's to reflect on the faithfulness, the goodness, and the grace of God. While we may experience a variety of things in our lives, especially as we experience those things together, there might be things that come along that provoke us to anger. And as we see here from Psalm 4, and we see how Paul uses it in Ephesians 4, that we are to ponder and dealing with that anger, to reflect, to set our heads, our hearts, on the faithfulness and the goodness and the grace of our Lord and to reflect on that. Secondly, we're to be silent, which is short form to say that we are to trust God and trust that God will care for it in his good time. Anger is a certainly volatile emotion that we feel that brings about volatile reactions. And many times anger leads to regret. We regret the ways in which we handled it. We regret the ways in which it controlled us. We regret the things that we've said. We regret the things that we've done. Anger can grip and bring destruction in its wake. So much so that Paul gives us a sunset limit to this anger. Don't let the sun go down. Now that's culturally important to understand in Paul's day. The sun was a major major determiner of really anything and everything. Business, trade, Law were all cared for within the hours of daylight. In fact, it was very common to not let conflict go beyond one day because it would just get harder to resolve. So practically in Paul's day, the sun really was a barometer for dealing with these things. And so it should be for us that we would ponder and be silent, but not allow things to linger on. Why? Why is our speech important? Why is anger and understanding it and pondering and being silent important? Because reason number one that we find here is that we are learning to walk together in order to not leave room for the devil to do his work exploiting these areas in the life of a church. This reason says don't give the devil a chance to exert his influence by distracting a church or discouraging a church, or dissuading a church from continuing to go Christward as a church. The devil wants to undermine and exploit our weaknesses so as to upend our witness. That we would cease to be making much of the grace of God because we've turned in on each other. That we treat each other deceptively, or we... Let our anger get out of control. It brings wreckage into a church. A church at at odds with each other in these ways is a church exactly where the devil wants it to be. Now, keep in mind, already in our letter and then also understanding it in the scope of all of Scripture, there's something bigger going on than just what happens on the weekend and week out kinds of things in the life of Trinity Baptist Church here in Nashua, New Hampshire. There's something bigger going on. The church is showing off God's grace to things seen 
and unseen. Church is part of a bigger story, a bigger thing that's happening. A few weeks back when we were in Ephesians 3, we came across this verse in Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The God is showing off the nature and character of His grace through our redeemed and rescued lives that are being built up together and strengthened in Christ. And, and our life as the church is reflecting God's grace, not just in our immediate community of Nashua and the southern end of New Hampshire, but cosmically, if you will, to things seen and unseen. And as a result, it brings us into the crosshairs of all sorts of oppositions that we'll see in a few weeks from now when we're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 Verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is something bigger going on in the witness of a church. And Paul's instruction is that we would learn to walk together so as to not give the devil a foothold to exert his influence. Should up the level of importance it is to mind how we talk with each other and care for each other. To mind the things that we do as we share life together and we bump into each other. And we struggle with our own anger and how we care for it. As we are Careless in caring for the things that we say and the, the manner in which we say them. It can give the devil opportunity to turn a church against itself. And we know Jesus said in Matthew twelve twenty five, anything that's turned in against itself will fall apart. He said these words, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house, bracket or church divided against itself stand. So really it's a call to pursue the very kind of unity that Ephesians 4 begins with, that we are so unified around all that God has done for us in Christ that we're eager to share that with each other and encourage that in each other so as to not let the devil have room to bring wreckage in our church family. Is that worth it? Absolutely. Is it worth it to learn how to walk together in that way? Without a doubt. It's important on a scale we don't even see and fully understand. Secondly, we find from our passages, we go about learning to walk together. is sort of a, another negative, or at least put in, a, in the negative context, is that we are to not grieve the Holy Spirit. That we are learning to walk together so as to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verses 28. Through 30. Starting in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Once again, we find a list of positive pursuits and radical removals to mark our learning to walk together. And in that, we find an embracing of a whole new value system. We are jettisoning an old value system, which we considered last week when we looked at old versus new. We're to keep jettisoning that. We're to keep putting that off as we are putting on new. And here, Paul continues that thought. We are embracing new values as we set aside values that have been shaped by the world in which we live in. It was true in Paul's day, and it is true in our day. In Paul's day, he had to emphasize that we are to no longer steal. And so for some in in the Ephesus region, theft was something ingrained with their former way of living. And his instructions around that really are, we we can see that it's, The fact that he had to instruct them on that tells us how difficult it is to break away from that which we once knew so intimately and so thoroughly in our old way. That it's difficult to break away from it. Difficult to break away from the norms of a society, of a culture in which we've been rescued from. You and I, we can definitely relate to the challenge of breaking away from the norms of a culture. I mean, just take the very nature and character of what it is that we're called to in the church. This very community. Are we sharing our lives with each other? And are in each other's lives enough that we're going to bump into each other and or we're going to speak truth and love to one another? Enough to care for one another, to even have hard conversations. We avoid all that in our culture. Or think about the context of what Paul's saying. Don't steal anymore. Well, well, maybe that's more relevant to us than we realize. Yeah, maybe you're not going into the local convenience store and coming out with a lot of bubble gum like you did when maybe you were little. but, But maybe stealing does show up in different ways. I mean, norms in our culture when it comes to work. It's pretty acceptable to have a bad attitude about work. It's pretty acceptable to have gossip-filled actions at work. Or maybe we find ourselves struggling with a lazy, apathetic sort of approach to our standard of work. Or maybe we convince ourselves it was okay to justify and justify stealing time from our employer. We find ourselves wrestling with some of the entanglement of the world in which we live in a little bit more than we realize. So maybe Paul's words really are that specific for us too and also apply beyond them. So we're to have a radical removal of those kinds of things from our lives and also a positive pursuit. And so instead of just simply saying, don't steal, he goes on to say, work hard to give generously. The new cultural value in its place is to work earnestly and to work earnestly in order to give generously. The kind of work that Paul is referring to isn't simply to do manual labor, but to do whatever you do as hard and as well as you can do it. To work hard with your own hands is an expression that points to good, gainful employment rather than which can be gained through theft. And it's not just about working hard. 
Because we can do that for all kinds of mixed motives. It's working hard to give generously. It sees the radical transformation from going from taking that which is not yours to giving away generously what was once yours. That sort of cultural fit in the life of a church, that sort of hard work to give generously attitude and culture that can mark a church is life-giving. It's encouraging. And it builds up. Which goes along into what he says next. That our speech would be the kind of speech that builds up, that it gives grace. Think about the radical removal of the getting rid of the, the corrupting talk. Corrupting talk is a little soft. It's, it's really the same word that would be used to describe a tree that produces rotten fruit. That our speech can be like a tree that produces rotten fruit. It means the kind of talk that is harmful and worthless. And just a few verses later in Ephesians 5 verse 4, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. In a sister letter in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8, Paul says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, from your mouth. And Jesus certainly once said, out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We don't want our speech to be that of like a tree producing rotten fruit. We want our speech to be life-giving speech. He says, the kind of talk that is good for building up. The kind of talk that is fitting to us learning to walk together. The kind of talk that gives grace because grace is being championed and celebrated in the community and culture of the church. God graciously uses the purposeful encouragement of his people in the lives of his people. I hope that you can do this little exercise I'm going to ask you to do. I hope that you can do that. I hope that you can think back, whether recent or at a critical moment in your life, at a timely, meaningful, purposeful encouragement that you have received from someone that you're learning to walk this new life together with. That thing that you were struggling with, That thing that you felt guilt around. That thing that you had shame over. And someone coming alongside you. Arm around your shoulder. Literally or metaphorically. Speaking the kind of words to you. That built you up. And gave you grace. It is life giving. It's infectious. And you want more. And you want to be a part of it. You want to share that also with others. I hope you can think back onto that. I hope it was recent too. And I hope that you long for that to be the common culture in the life of your church. Why? Well, that leads us to reason number two. That we do these things, these positive pursuits and these radical removals so as to not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Paul uses this language to help us get an idea of how serious it is. Grieve, to grieve, literally means to to make sad. And so if we are going to belong to a church and yet cling to the old ways of life, we're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. Stealing and corrupting speech or, or cultural values shaping our lives rather than these new values, it grieves the Spirit who brings life and is making us more like Jesus. This very warning that Paul gives is actually a long-standing one. He's pulling in from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10. It's a very interesting moment in the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, verse 10 says this, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Sobering words. The prophet is referring back to the moment of the exodus in the Old Testament, earlier days which the people of God were rescued out of Egypt. But in the wilderness, they turned against God. They, they rejected Him. They doubted Him. They rebelled against Him. And, and the Bible is saying it grieved the Holy Spirit. It set them up against God rather than enjoying the presence and the power of God at work in them. And Isaiah 63 is using the Exodus story as a warning to the exile story in that part of the history of the Old Testament. The people of God are now on the other side of this whole land. So the Exodus people were trying to get to the land, and that generation didn't make it because they rebelled against God. And now Isaiah is speaking to a people of God who have lost the land because they have rejected God. And he's saying, don't be like them. And now Paul is bringing them into the New Testament, and he's saying... Don't be like all of them. Where you turn against God, your your values and the way you live them out are so against God that it just wrecks your church. It's a sobering warning. Also shows that our words, the way that we live, matter greatly. Like we began with, a culture can be life-giving or life-draining. And as we reflect upon all that God has provided for us in Christ, we have at our disposal all the things needed for the culture of our church to be life-giving. And it's okay to take the soberness and the seriousness of these warnings and this encouragement uh, to heart. So our first two reasons were heavy ones. They're hard ones. Are we living in a way that is demonstrating that the devil has exerted his influence over the life of our church? Sobering. Are we living in a way that puts us against the work of the Holy Spirit? That's sobering. The third one's a little more positive. (laughs) But no less sobering. Third reason is that we're learning to walk together so as to love like God. Learning to walk together so as to love like God. Let's pick up in verse 31 and read through uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, 
be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Once again, there's a list of positive pursuits and radical removals. Of the radical removals, we are to put away self-love, self-absorbed love in living. This list that Paul walks through in verse 31 is a brewing storm of unchecked, unfettered, self-absorbed love wrecking a church. Not self-giving love, not selfless love, but rather self-absorbed, self-protective love. Look at this list. Let all of these things be put away. Let all. Another way of saying that is every kind of these things. Bitterness. The word for bitterness here means intense resentment or hate. Wrath, that is, outburst of rage. Anger, the stewing, festering, seething kind of hate. Bitterness, again, that is combustible. Um, or um, like combustible fuel, sometimes like bursting and then sometimes slow burning. Clamor, that is Shouting in a fight like a brawl. Slander, which literally means blasphemy in relation to God. But in relation to others, it's typically used as a profanity-laced verbal abuse. Malice, which is purposeful wickedness. It almost seems silly that Paul would have to tell a church to not do this. And yet here he is writing this. Let it all be put away. So we can't assume that we are above any of it. That our church is above any of this. He's writing to the Ephesians to put this away. And looking back at the beginning of our chapter, these are the very kinds of things that will attack our unity and bond of peace. So we're to have a radical removal of them. And in their place, we're to put on something new, that we are to put on kindness, which certainly anticipates our third reason, but we are kind because God was first kind to us. He says in verse 32, to be kind to one another. And we're doing that because God has been kind to us. And we're reminding that and we're rehearsing that and we're wanting to model that to each other because we've received that from the Lord. Romans 4.4 says that knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is kind to you so as to lead you to repentance. And repentance is turning away from the old in order to turn to the new. That is, that we have in Christ. God poured out his kindness so that you would have that turn in your life. Or think about kindness that we already came across in Ephesians 2 verse 7. Which says, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about that famous list in Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now you might be wondering what kind of kindness are we talking about here? Well, he goes on to describe it. He says it's tender-hearted. It's that we are to build and strengthen and sustain a culture that is tender-hearted to each other. This means careful consideration of others, 
and what they're going through in life. And a willingness to go through it with them. Tenderhearted kindness is, is a, a compassion in action. Drawing closer to each other as we're hurting or reeling in this life and in this world. That we would be a church body that cares enough to go closer even as we reel under the weight of sin of our own or of others or just struggle in this life. That we would be tender hearted with each other. And we would also be forgiving. What kind of kindness? The forgiving kind of kindness. A freely given graciousness. A no-strings-attached character that we would be a people quick to forgive. By reminding and rehearsing to ourselves of what we have already received from God in Christ. And that is forgiveness of an even greater magnitude. That it... Tender-hearted, forgiving kindness would be flowing from what God has done for us and in us. So when we compile all of this together, a good way to say it is that a healthy church culture, learning to walk this road together, would be the kind that is slow to anger and quick to forgive. And what's that third reason for such a call? That we would love like God. He says, imitate God. And then he qualifies that by saying it's walking in love. These two verses in chapter 5 serve as a summary and culmination of what chapter 4 was focused on. A little bit of an awkward break in the chapters as it grammatically fits with chapter 4. And at the end of this, where chapter 4 begins with this call to walk, it ends with this call to walk. And this call to walk is an imitation of God. Imitation requires a few things. First, it requires knowledge of and delight and a desire for a life that reflects the love displayed in Christ. Declared in the gospel and received through faith. A knowledge of, a delighting in, and a desire for. To imitate means you know it, you delight in it, and you desire it. And then for us, what then does it mean to imitate God? But... To walk in love. The cause to love like Christ. <clears throat> or what we would say is to have Christ-likeness. And this means that living like Christ is going to be looking to Christ. Paul looks to Christ immediately after his imperative. And what does he see when he looks to Christ? He sees the cross. For Christ gave up himself for it. His brothers and sisters. The cross demonstrates the nature of the love by which we are to walk. Sacrificial. Willingly. Setting aside self for the good of others. It is costly. But it is life-giving. These reasons are to anchor and shape the culture of a church. As we learn to walk together. And learning to walk together embraces these Christward pursuits and anticipates these radical removals. We don't have to live self-absorbed, self-preservation at the cost of other lives. We can give away ourselves for the good of others. And in 
that process, we get to see the beauty of God, the beauty of his grace on display in our church. Let's learn to walk together that direction. Let's not allow room for the devil to bring wreckage. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let's learn to love like God does. All the while holding on to what God has given us through the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we ask that it would indeed find a home in our hearts. God, there might be things that we might be convicted over as we consider uh, these words. There might be things that uh, have been left unresolved in relationships. I, I just pray that you, God, by your spirit, would work in our hearts. That you would bring both conviction and comfort in Christ and courage to make right with each other. God, may we model well that which we have received in the gospel. May we model together a slow to anger, quick to forgive culture, that we would be eager to speak in ways that build each other up, that give grace, that are life-giving. God, that we would do so in such a way that it disarms our hearts, self-preservation and defensiveness, pride, that it welcomes the weary and the bedraggled and the beat down in this world, that helps to see others come to know the overwhelming grace that you have for sinners. God, may you do that in us and through us. May this be all the more real culture of our church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.